Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life. Today is April 4th, 2019. 74 years ago, today's great moral leader was executed in the Flossenburg concentration camp by the Nazis. This week, we'll be talking about a hero of both me and David, and I'm sure many of y'all are big fans, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 to a wealthy, well-to-do German family, the progeny of military service and money and pseudo-royalty. Diedrich grew up in privilege. He was well-educated, Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a professor until the rise of the Nazi movement, at which point he became a dissenter, a leader in the confessing church, an outspoken voice for sanity and reason. He'll flee to England and to the United States, but he'll be brought back over and over, his heart drawn towards those being wounded by the Nazi regime in Europe. Eventually, he'll leverage his privilege to become a member of Nazi counterintelligence and join a plot to undermine the Nazi regime and eventually assassinate Hitler. This will lead to his arrest and his internment in the Flossenburg concentration camp, where he will eventually die on April 9th of 1945, 74 years ago today weeks before his camp was liberated. Bonhoeffer is a popular figure. Everyone wants Bonhoeffer. Everyone claims Bonhoeffer. You can find hundreds of books about this man, arguing that he would support all sorts of different candidates and positions. But David and I think that if you want to understand Bonhoeffer, you need to talk to Bonhoeffer himself. There's a whole library that this man has produced. And we encourage you to do some of that work yourself. To go and discover this inspirational figure of courage and ethical Christian action. We hope you enjoyed today's episode on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. Well, I'll start by saying that it is my privilege to, to teach about Bonhoeffer at Mercer every semester. And uh, this semester, this spring semester, I'm in Macon teaching the undergrads. And I asked uh, yesterday, and it was Bonhoeffer week, I asked them, how many of you had heard of Bonhoeffer before uh, this class? Uh, out of 28, Jeremy, how many do you think had heard of him? What uh, what level are these? Are sophomores? Sophomores, fifty uh, percent of the twenty-eight. He was Brad Pitt was in a movie that featured a character called Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Four. Four. Yes. That's. I feel like that's bad. It feels. It feels. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and one of them said, "Well, of course, this was high school we're talking about," and and then there was lots of razzing on what high school is like these days. But anyway, four out of twenty-eight, and. Um, so Bonhoeffer, for those of us who are theology nerds, um, Bonhoeffer, we all know who Bonhoeffer is. 
In fact, everybody wants to claim Bonhoeffer. But he is dropping off of um, ordinary like education now, even about 20th century Germany. So I'm glad that I, I'm doing my part. We're doing our part in the book uh, to keep his memory alive. And so Bonhoeffer is our topic today. A similar experience to, uh, to you realizing no one in your class knows who he is. When I was taking your seminary level class on Bonhoeffer, and we read a lot of Bonhoeffer and went from, I'm a theology nerd who really likes Bonhoeffer, and I read the letters to having some good handles on him. Uh, he would get talked about in the classes I would teach, and at that time I was running a, a youth group in Decatur, Georgia, and I had a German exchange student who was a junior in the uh, in her high school, and she came over here for an exchange year, and I asked her about Bonhoeffer, and she had never heard the name before. Growing up in Berlin, she did not know the name Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, that's pretty bad. That's horrifying. Yeah. You, so let's dispel ignorance today. Where so do you want to start? I, I think, so I gave a quick intro on his early life and a little bit of his education, because he, he's kind of a, a kid genius. He's an interesting little dude. But at what point does Bonhoeffer, because his... His part of the story that most of us like to interact with is his engaging with the Nazis um, in Germany. Um, at what point does Dietrich know that the Nazis are a serious reality that he's going to have to deal with rather than a, a political craze or uh, a cultural phase? Or you know, there's, there's reason for there to be angst in the Weimar Republic, the... Germany is, has been embarrassed. A lot of people feel that they've been dealt unjustly with. And now all these other nations are trying to tell them how to be. And so there's lots of different angst movements. And the National Socialists are just one of these. When does Bonhoeffer know these people are actually trouble? I, I think the only way to really answer that is to be in his correspondence in the 1920s. Uh, which uh, is a gap in my in my reading. I have not read his correspondence from the twenties. He's still young. I mean, he's born in nineteen oh six, so he's and he, he in nineteen twenty seven. He's finished his dissertation. His, I believe that's his first dissertation. There will be others. Uh, there's another one. Um, he's pursuing his education essentially through nineteen thirty. I would say certainly by 1931, 32, he would be fully aware that that the Nazis, who seemed like a fairly fringe movement in the 20s, they were getting uh, higher and higher percentages of the vote in the various parliamentary elections in 31 and 32, peaking actually at 37%. I mean, that's legit, a legit threat. And then... Hitler is named Chancellor in January of 33. And even then, it wasn't clear that this weak democracy in Germany was going to go away within six months and that Hitler was going to be so ruthlessly effective at consolidating power. So, I mean, I think he's 
certainly by January of 33, 27-year-old Dietrich Bonhoeffer knows that, I mean, Adolf Hitler is in power, and he's already giving an important lecture about um, this, clearly directed towards what Hitler is about by February of 33. So I, w- I wonder if in 1925 and 26 he's thinking, you know, these guys could actually come to power. I don't think too many people were thinking that at that time. But then his career really gets seriously going, as Hitler's does, and the rest is history. Yeah, Hitler was older. That could be a really interesting paper. Hitler and Bonhoeffer as parallel historical trains. Hitler was born in 1889, Bonhoeffer 1906. But yeah, when... So he was... 17 years older. So when Bonhoeffer is a wunderkind, wunderkind uh, the- theologian at 22, you know, uh, Hitler is trying to become the leader of Germany. And by the time Bonhoeffer is 27, Hitler is the leader of Germany. And, and at 27, Bonhoeffer embarrasses people like me. I'm 28, and I'm thinking... How many doctorates does Bonhoeffer have at this point? Probably it's one at twenty-seven, right? He hasn't gotten. He got. I think he got his second dissertation done when he was twenty-four. Yeah. Well, great. Sorry, Jeremy. Um, you will not be able to buttress your your self-esteem with that. Bonhoeffer is not a place to go to feel good about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been true. That's always been so true. So he's twenty-eight, and he's he's still living in Berlin. And he's he's got opportunities in the field he wants to pursue he could be the next theologian that people cared about in berlin yeah he has a by 1933 he has a faculty position at the university of berlin he also has like an adjunctive chaplaincy position at this technical university and he is also doing church ministry um and he's becoming an ecumenically significant figure he has two dissertations published. It's important not to start with Bonhoeffer the conspirator, but to start with Bonhoeffer the young academic churchman. We have probably a lot of listeners who are highly trained church leader types, some with doctorates who kind of go back and forth between church and academy, right? That's who he was. And very promising from a high-end family with a high-end degree, and could have... I mean, I'm just remembering when I was that age, all I was really thinking about, besides my young family, was how do I scrap my way into a permanent teaching position and build my career? And, And he was in that stage in his career. And for a lot of people, basic personal ambition ruled. Uh, get a job, hold a job. If they require a Hitler salute now and then, how Hitler? Ah, I don't even mean it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just fired my Jewish colleagues for on the basis of state racism. Oh, and yeah, there is some boycotting, and yeah, the Jews are being, well, I mean, it's unfortunate, but you know how you see how people's reasoning yeah. works, right? I'm not responsible. I just got a job to do here. I got a family to feed. Yeah, don't make too many waves. Don't make too many waves. And so you post something on Twitter, but <laughs> measured. Right, right. So think about 
Bonhoeffer's moral clarity and courage, it begins when he's a promising young rising academic in Berlin who won't compromise. And this is about the time that the state is really starting to flex its muscles against the church, right? Is it in the 30s that the the Kirchenkampf really becomes a thing? Because if you want control... Uh, people in Europe, the church is a good place to go. And so the state has, the party has consolidated political power, but it's always been interested in bringing hearts and minds along with it. And if you're German, you you gotta go get the Lutherans. In um, the first, I would say the first six months from January 33 forward, um, Hitler was consolidating power uh, knocking democracy out of out of the game. By the summer of 1933, he was already essentially ruling by decree, and um, there was no functioning parliament. Um, by the way, declarations of emergency can be helpful for that. And um, and then the idea, the bigger vision, was to create a totalitarian society in which social and political unity was achieved through a combination of seduction and coercion. And there was a word for there was actually a word they use, Gleichschaltung, which means coordination. They wanted to coordinate all major institutions and um, basically sectors of society and Nazify everything. So that includes um, Education, the arts, journalism, media, business, labor, culture, and then the church. The church, they knew was going to be a little bit of a harder challenge. Uh, The Catholic church, what they did was to strike a deal with Rome that basically said, if you don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. It's called the Concordat. Which Pope was that? Pius XI, I think. And um, and it turned out to be a naive deal on the part of the Vatican because uh, the Nazis didn't really keep their end of it. Um, but, but that was that. And then on the state Protestant side, the Evangelische Kirche, the the German Evangelical Church. It was um, it's complicated, but the idea was to build on already existing momentum to centralize the administration of the German churches, German Protestant churches, which had been um, basically very federal. They had been, you know, Germany didn't even become a country until 1871, mm-hmm. and so the a bunch of different kingdoms, right? The bunch of different kingdoms and. I gather that the uh, leadership structure was still decentralized in that way. So it was the Evangelical Church of Berlin-Brandenburg and the Evangelical Church of Bavaria and the Evangelical Church of, you know, wherever. And so they were already, before Hitler, talking about centralizing the administration. So Hitler seized on the move to go ahead and build one uh, German Protestant church hierarchy and then to install... A, uh, a Nazi sympathizer in the chief bishop role. 
And so that was one arena of struggle. And the other was to, because um, the German Protestant Church was taxpayer-supported, was a state institution in that sense. You could control who it employed. Yes, and so, so they they had some power over that, and and because it was a state institution, one of the early tests was when when the Nazis decided to push everybody of Ary, or non Aryan blood out of the civil service. That uh, spilled over to include the clergy and professors of theology employed in state institutions. And so the church had to decide whether they were going to accept that or whether they were going to resist it. And so these were some of the battle lines that led to the church struggle as, as in everything else, a spectrum of opinion emerged between the hardline resistors who said, no, we're not going to allow the state to pick our bishop, to influence that process at all, to tell us who our ministers can be or to meddle in our church affairs all the way to the gung-ho Nazi Protestants, and then a lot of people in between. And so the church struggle ended up um, in a schism in which a group that called itself eventually the Confessing Church split from the official Reich Church that was under a Nazi bishop and uh, was implementing the Aryan Clause and all of that. And of course we know that Bonhoeffer was one of the most uncompromising members of the Confessing Church. A sort of charter document for the Confessing Church was the Barman Declaration, which served as a confession of faith and a rallying cry for Bonhoeffer and other leaders. It came in six main theses, and I've tried here in post-production to simplify them to be understood quickly. And so the six are... The only acceptable source of revelation is the word of God found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Lord of all aspects of personal life. There should be no other authority. The message and authority of the church should not be influenced or altered by contemporary political issues. The church should not be ruled by a leader. They use the German word Führer. The church should not be ruled by a Fuhrer. This sort of thinking makes no sense in the life of the church. The state and the church should keep to their respective realms of work and authority. Therefore, we reject the idea that the church can be subordinate to the state, or that the scriptures or Holy Spirit could ever be subordinate to the earthly church. And this is with the confessing church now underway, and all of the institutions being either fully Nazified or well on their way to full Nazification, control of what can be said in the academy, control of what can be said in the church, control of who can work in those spaces. Uh, The arts belong to the state. A lot of people are just leaving, too. For some folks, the the fight is the right thing to do, um, to struggle and resist, but for a lot of folks, it's just get out of Dodge, get out of town. Sweden gains a lot of academics. Yeah. You do have a flow of refugees, especially Jewish refugees, though it wasn't it wasn't a, a mass exodus because they you know, people don't leave easily, right? Mm-hmm. But there wa- there there was a um a growing exile population and when the pressure ratcheted up, more people left, people like Karl Barth. 
uh, the great theologian who were who was employed in a German university ended up uh, having to go to Switzerland. He was fired. Um, there were a variety of um, moments in which people's willingness to cooperate with the Nazis was tested. Um, among other things, the requirement of an oath of allegiance uh, to the Nazi state or a personal oath of loyalty to Hitler. Um, I mean, or even saying the how Hitler in class to, to begin your, your class session. Your pledge of allegiance. Your pledge of allegiance. Um, uh, you know, so, so there, were, there were a lot of uh, places of testing. So there's so much to, to reflect on there. And Bonhoeffer is only part of that story. In some ways, a relatively small part because mm-hmm. he was young. But so he's 27. But picture the 55-year-old seasoned, built a life. You know, yeah. And and so, uh, what are they? What are what is? What are each of these people going to do? What choices are they going to make? The most appalling part of the story is how easily some seasoned Protestant academics and church people just bought Nazism hook, line, and sinker and align their theology with it, right? Um, it, it's a, akin to a kind of a white supremacist KKK Christianity in the, in the U.S. Not, not all that different, really, um, with the main target of hate being the Jews rather than black people. But Is this a, a scapegoating mechanism that draws people into this? What makes this so attractive? Why is, why is it seductive? That's a great question. People, you know, my students again this week were like, how did this society go this crazy? And we have to build bridges of understanding from mm-hmm. from our world to theirs without making facile comparisons. And that's not easy to, to manage that, right? But um, the Jews were the ancestral enemy going back to centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, Luther made it worse with his diatribe against the Jews. And their lies. The, the Jews and their lies. About a 280-page book. I read it. It's horrible. Published near the end and of his life. And nonsensical. Right. It's just, M- much of it is just rambling. It's it's garbage. And Take their houses and then burn them and then give them to good Germans. Wait. Luther. Yeah, can you do all those things? Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, societies under stress often look for scapegoats. They were humiliated after World War One. They were grieving their losses. You have a theology of the lost cause, which those of us who are Southerners know a little something about, um, and uh, wounded pride. And but the, the interesting thing is the theological coordination. I think that the loss of the Jewishness of Jesus didn't just begin in 1933. Um, the the burying of the Jewishness of Jesus and the and the evolution of Christianity into a uh, Hellenic kind of Greek religion um, it was always a tension but but in large sections of Christianity the Jewishness side completely dropped off so when people start proposing we should cut the Old Testament out of the Bible uh, and cut any hymns that have words like Zion or Yahweh in them um, change church names if it says like Jacob or you know Get that Jewish influence out of it. Out of, yeah, out of a movement that was a Jewish messianic movement led by a Jewish messiah and with an original cast of 12 Jewish apostles. It's it's nonsense. And yet, I remember Bonhoeffer, no, Bart, 
was seen as doing something controversial when in a sermon in the early Nazi years, he, he wrote a sermon called That Jesus Christ Was Jewish or born a Jew. And that was seen as scandalous. So um, so you have the, the deep Nazifiers. That's a, that's a kind of a heretical turn that is one kind of problem. But I think it's the the complicit compromisers who are more interesting in some ways. They know this is fishy. They don't buy the Nazi theology. But partly it's a theology of subordination to the state. You can, you can Romans your way into that. You can, uh-huh. And partly it's a, um, a desire uh, to be good citizens, to be patriots. And a lot of pressure to be patriotic. Be a part of the Volk. Uh-huh. And make Germany great again. And uh, partly it's um, it's lots of self-interest about keeping your job and your social status and your friends. The society is going this direction. Who am I to push back? Um, so there are a lot of factors that led to this complicity and compromise. But Bonhoeffer never was slightly attracted to that. At what point in his career, because he is like living the dream at this point. He's got the academic. He's got the ecumenical. He's even, he's leading a movement in a way. He's a part of the, the movers and shakers in the confessing church. When does he decide to walk? He's going to run going to hop ship and go west. Well, there's a couple of stages that I think are really interesting. He decides to to pastor a church in London in the fall of 1933, which is an odd decision. Mm-hmm. He so we're in the first year of the Nazi era. Um, he had been in the resistance, but he got this offer to go to London and pastor these two German expatriate congregations, and he says yes. Um, he loved to travel, and he loved to have different kinds of experiences, but but it's more than that. It, it appears that he was discouraged. He was he was, and he was also needing a period of regrouping. And there was some thinking: why, if these more seasoned people are not resisting, like and they're calling me some hopeless radical. Maybe I need to reconsider. Maybe I just need a time of retreat. Anyway, he, he bailed. And I find that a very human Bonhoeffer. But then he went back, and apparently Bart was very critical of that. We need you here. How can you do this? Um, right. But Bart's going to leave, too. Well, he got forced out. I think it was the next year. And then he comes back. and he, and he But he comes back now that there's a schism. The Nazis do have control of the official church. But he decides to come back and participate in educating uh, uh, confessing church pastors. There was still space for a little while. There was a state, I gather, a reluctant state recognition that there were two different churches now, the official church and the confessing church. And there was a little bit of space for for doing um, this dissident theological education but it wasn't much, and it was always questionable. And within a couple of years, it, that got squeezed out, too. Is this life together? Yeah, this is the season of the Finkenwalde, 
uh, seminary and when he wrote Life Together and uh, basically led a, a small but influential experiment in quasi-monastic Protestant theological education. Um, by this point, he, he knew that the Nazis were settling in for a pretty long run. He knew that it was tyrannical and dangerous. And we're talking about 1935, 36, mm-hmm. 37. And um, that, that they're going to have to be educated in a different way. By the way, um, the fact that theological education was and still is often based in universities, and the universities there especially had all those state ties, um, and have a kind of a culture of academic excellence more than a culture of piety, uh, was problematic if you're trying to build a deeply resistant, willing-to-die countercultural bunch of ministers. He knew that some different kind of, of uh, experience of theological education was needed. And you used the word monastic, and I, I don't want people to miss that. It was scheduled prayers and shared work, and didn't they live in like a big bunkhouse? Yeah, in the they barn? did. Yeah, and um, he he borrowed Anglican slash Catholic kind of uh, hours of the day schedule. You know, morning prayer, or vespers at night, um, a, a relentless kind of schedule. Basically, the deeper the resistance that is needed, the deeper the spirituality that is needed to support it. Mm-hmm. And, you got trained in deep waters. Yes, and that's that's what he was doing. That's I think that's very insightful on his part. And eventually, that was also shut down. Though I mean, they kept going deeper underground. You can't really stop people from training other people in discipleship, but you can stop having it being very easy if the state decides to harass you every time they find you doing it, right? Right. Um, The other thing you alluded to is, so in the summer of 1939, it's now six years in, Hitler's got a firm grip on power. There are rumors of war. You had Kristallnacht in November 1938, the Mm -hmm. horrific attack on the Jewish synagogues and businesses and community of, uh, of Germany and now Austria burning the synagogues to the ground. The situation has become more radical. Bonhoeffer has a chance to leave again. He, he has a chance to go to America, go back to Union Seminary in New York, where he had an influential year earlier, which maybe we'll talk about. But 1939, June, he's at Union. 99.999999% of people who had that opportunity, who were dissidents in Germany, man, they stayed in America. Yeah. Who wouldn't? He could have been a professor at Union, probably, or wherever he wanted. Lived a long life. Lived a long Doing life. Doing what he wanted to do. Who knows? I might have even met him. I went to Union Seminary in uh, 1987. He could have been emeritus professor. I might have met Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's kind of cool to think about. You know, historians of Bonhoeffer know that he spent about a year in New York City from 1930 to 31. It's a very interesting time in his journey. He he's twenty four years old. He's so young. He's done with his two dissertations. Um, That's when I started seminary. It's it's kind of like an international, um, almost like an exchange program. But anyway, a year abroad. Right. The idea is to see what the Americans know. So he goes to Union, where I actually went fifty seven years later, and is not all that impressed. Uh, Union is in the is in the grip of the social gospel, Rauschenbusch and 
uh, all of that. Reinhold Niebuhr is the leading figure. He's um, He says at one point, they talk about everything here except the gospel. Um, he's not impressed with the preaching in the in the Protestant churches. He he's more affected by two friends. One, and actually, there was more than one. There was more than two. There was a, a Swiss friend and some others. But the two who make the history books are um, Jean Lasserre, a French pacifist, and so the German French rivalry was deep. And 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 knowing Jean Lasserre deepens his pacifist commitment and uh, also uh, challenges his German uh, nationalism. And then his friend, Albert Frank Fisher. Um, and that friendship is discussed brilliantly by uh, my friend Reggie Williams and his book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. It was a dissertation at Fuller Seminary, now a book with Baylor. And uh, Reggie... We'll post a link. Yeah, Reggie shows um, that... It w- it wasn't just the friendship that mattered, uh, but uh, Frank Fisher uh, took him up to Harlem, which wasn't far away. Union is at 120th and Broadway, and you're in Harlem five blocks north, 125th Street. And I think Abyssinian Baptist Church is at 137th. And so he went to Abyssinian Baptist Church, the leading black Baptist church. And and so there, he said, he encountered the gospel. And it was the Depression, and everybody was poor, um, but he was deeply impressed by basically the black, the black resistant Christian tradition. And he also then, with his insatiable curiosity, um, got to know people who... Uh, who were uh, he was reading the NAACP magazine. He was reading literature. He was listening to spirituals and blues. I love it so much. You know, little German egghead uh-huh. with his perfectly round glasses, walking around Harlem, reading some Langston Hughes, reading uh, poetry by County Cullen, um, learning about the NAACP, learning about the Black Church tradition, resistance literature. Yeah, and. Also encountering racism, white racism, and concluding that white racism has infected Christianity in America, but oh, it's kind of a cousin to what's happening in Germany, and so he sees the parallel between the Jewish plight and the African American plight, and the the uh, virus of racist Christianity, and he also says that he's converted there that mm. that he wasn't really a christian before but he uh, he actually he's a theologian not a christian jesus finally makes it from his head to his heart yeah and uh, abyssinian and harlem had a lot to do with that and so reggie's thesis is that uh, it's certainly not union but it's harlem that makes the big difference and that he goes back changed uh and um that that helps to explain the depth of his resistance. This is before Hitler comes to power, before he starts his career at the University of Berlin, and uh, it, it shapes the journey in a way that had not been had not been understood. So, an important part of the story. Mm-hmm. But because his conscience was racked, and he knew that he said, "My place is with my people," and so 
he went back to um, to Germany into the resistance. And, uh, and of course, that's that last stage of his journey that's so interesting. At that point, he's in. Right. Um, the, the issue, uh, a practical issue he was facing was he was still young enough to be draftable. There was no, there was no acceptance for uh, conscientious objection. Don't want to shoot. Don't want to shoot. We will shoot you. Right. There aren't many compassionate Nazis. No, and so he he knew he couldn't go and be a soldier on the front, but he didn't think that it that it made sense or that it would be good for the reputation of the confessing church for him to be shot as a. So he he is invited by I think connections of his brother-in-law who's very high up Hans von Donjani right cuz he's from it's it's almost we don't have cultural handles for it but almost quasi um royal lineage right his family are like duke well sort of there's folks. on on the mom's side there's that kind of connection but on the dad's side it's more just professional it's the high end professional class Mm-hmm. You know, dad was like the leading psychiatrist in Germany, you know, and so they're hyper connected. They're really it's like the uh, the the kind of people who everybody in the family is going to be a lawyer or a doctor or uh, general or, or somebody important. Right. Right. And so he has those connections. And so he goes back and joins military counterintelligence. I think in our country it would be like um, some branch of the defense intelligence agency or mm-hmm. something. And people are shocked. What does he know about military or counterintelligence? Why is he there? Well, why he's there is it's a place to be in uniform, serving the country, supposedly. But there's actually a, a resistance cell in the Abwehr, the military counterintelligence, that he's drawn into. And his role, he gets sent during the war, which begins September 1st, 1939. He gets sent. Uh, to various European countries to liaison with, to, to be basically a resistance liaison with the Allies. And to tell them, hey, there is resistance happening in Germany, and here's what we're working on, and don't give up on us, and will you support us if we can take power, and things like that. And as the war went on, as genocide developed, as as hatred of Hitler grew, and the awareness that he was, he was a mass murderer on a scale that hadn't been seen before, um, this resistance cell became one node of a plan to assassinate Hitler. Mm-hmm. And despite, there's one book that says Bonhoeffer didn't know anything about the conspiracy, but I think that's not true. He was not, um, he was not the person who was going to plant a bomb next to Hitler, but he knew those who were going to. And so he ends up becoming like chaplain to the resistance. Right. Yeah, that's how I, I read him. He's sort of their ethical center. Yeah, and, you know, when democracy is gone, when the church has been toothless, when the country is now embarking on genocide, when nobody will listen to reason, when all institutions of society have been Nazified, you're in a radical situation. And he, he said in a radical situation, a radical response is needed. And so uh, he got involved in this conspiracy. Even if it hadn't been an assassination conspiracy, it would still be viewed as treason. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he was finally found out and arrested. Ends up in prison um, for the last, I think it was, two years. I think he was two years in prison. 
and he's correct me if I'm wrong on this. He, while we we see this sort of writing during the conspiracy, and then once they've been caught from his cor- correspondences um, from uh, prison and eventually the the camps, where he says things like, "We're going to have to kill Hitler." And that will always, this is the only option we have, and it's the wrong one. We will be guilty for this, even though it's what has to be done. He doesn't say it quite as directly as that. When you're in a resistance, even your private writings can be captured, and they're dangerous. And so he spoke in a kind of code. But but those who he was dialoguing with knew what he was talking about. Um, especially in a society that had been as top-down and authoritarian and you might say Christendom-like as Germany was. It this took, was the Holy Roman Empire. It, it, Not long ago. It took a considerable amount of reflection to get to a place where he could see assassination, tyrannicide it's called, technically, uh, as not right as in we're you know we're guiltless but as responsible how about that if you can get if you have a shot at getting next to the man who is doing this evil who is the head of this beast uh, then you have an obligation to try to kill him Um, but more broadly he was reflecting on what it's like when a society goes crazy how do you keep your moral compass? How do you keep your moral compass when you're in a conspiracy that involves lying every day? Double agents and secret trips and code words. And, As an ordained minister yeah, and student of ethics. Yeah, and writer of ethics. I mean, this is not uh, the kind of thing you learn in seminary, right? Um, Unless you go to the Maccabee School of Theology <laughs> and take breakfast with Bonhoeffer <laughs> at 7 a.m. on Thursdays. Yes, uh, that's right. So... so um, but it's like I, I see the I see Bonhoeffer at, in the conspiracy as kind of connecting to the broader stream of his family, the government servants, the the people who were high level bureaucrats and civil servants. In other words, the statecraft side. But yet he was also he was still he never stopped being a theologian or ethicist. He he thought it through that way. But the minister who who only prays who only preaches, he wasn't even allowed to preach anymore, who only writes, he, it wasn't enough at that point. He needed to do, to do more. And so we've, we've been captured. Bonhoeffer is toast. He's in the machine now. Um, the conspiracy is dead. They've got a hold of everyone's papers, and we're going to spend the last several years of his life in the prison structure of the fully formed Nazi war machine. It was not a necessarily a foregone conclusion that Bonhoeffer would be killed. He was a high a high up guy from a high up family and even Hitler hesitated to slaughter that class of people um, until the end or near the end. But after the July nineteen forty four assassination plot he radicalized some people think he went even more crazy than he was he was evil but he was kind of mm-hmm. kind of crazy after that he was wounded in that attack it wasn't it wasn't without effect on his health and um 
And as the war was ending in the spring of 1945, Hitler had this kind of, I'm going to bring it all down with me kind of vibe going. Why should anything survive after I'm gone? I am Germany. And uh, we're going to lose, and I'm going to die, and I don't care if anything survives. And and he just started slaughtering people more and more. Um, and, and so... Uh, Bonhoeffer was finally, along with the rest of the conspirators, killed. He died on April 9th. And I always tell my students, don't forget, it was only three weeks later that Hitler killed himself. If the order had been delayed a month, Bonhoeffer would have survived. He could have been a part of rebuilding Germany as he so wanted to be. But uh, it was not to be. And so he was executed on April 9th, 1945. There were a lot of people being killed at that time. It was chaos, mayhem, and confusion. Um, his family, including his fiancée, uh, Maria, didn't find out that he had been killed until it was announced on the BBC that there was a memorial service happening in Britain for Bonhoeffer and others, I think. Mm. And they found out on the radio that Bonhoeffer uh, Dietrich had been killed. Also, two other members of that generation in that family were killed. His brother, who was also in the resistance, and his brother-in-law. So the Bonhoeffers lost uh, three three young men. But so did so many other families as well. Yeah. So for the church and the academy, uh, what, is the, what is the legacy of Bonhoeffer? What does he need to tell us? What do we need to hear from him? Well, there's so many things in the book. We'll have a specific, you know, kind of takeaway list. But today, as I think about them, yeah, um, it would be being able to to understand what is going on around you in the society, to read it accurately, and not just to not just to pray about it, though he did plenty of praying, but to act with integrity, to follow Jesus. And to resist forcefully, uh, creatively. Um, I would also say his writings over his brief but meteoric career uh, are part of his resistance. They are resistance theology of, of a type and need to be understood that way. So there's still a place for preaching and writing and direct ministry. But in his case... Uh, the radicalism of the regime led to an increasingly radical resistance, which mm-hmm. took him into conspiracy. That doesn't mean everybody's supposed to go into conspiracy, but um, but it was his path. It was the alignment of his life and his and his writing, uh, the integrity that I think sticks with me today. You, listener, must. Go read Bonhoeffer. Don't read books about Bonhoeffer. First, read Bonhoeffer. There's discipleship, life together, ethics, and letters and papers from prison. That's your first assignment, those four. And then we'll direct you to the other 12 volumes of the uh, collected works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is available through Fortress Press. Then you can move on to the biographies. That's right. Very good. Let's uh, take a minute, and with the permission of the publisher, you always got to put that in there or they will find you, um, listen to the leadership lessons from the audiobook, which you can find on Audible, 
or Amazon, um, anywhere you purchase that kind of media. Leadership Lessons Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life and Work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Radical evil demands radical faith. In the face of evil, being moderate will not do. It is not easy holding to a radical faith when everyone around you is willing to compromise or when it may cost you your life. Radical faith insists on not cooperating with evil and demands that responsible people act thoughtfully and humbly, but courageously. Identifying radical evil is not easy. We are just as quick to label those with whom we disagree as evil as we are to compromise with evil when it offers power and security. Learning to see history from below and correctly identify evil is a practice for a lifetime. Subordinate ambition to moral integrity. Where would we be if every resistor against tyranny opted instead for the easy lure of wealth and privilege? Personal ambition drives many of the moral leaders in this book, but all of them subjected that ambition to a higher moral cause. Live what you write. Write what you live. Bonhoeffer was a theologian who lived his theological concepts and an ethicist who followed his own teachings. His writings reflect a young man wrestling with big ideas in an impossible context. He used his writing to reflect critically on situations, decide the right course of action, and then encourage others to see matters the same way. Travel matters. Some people travel just to get away. Others focus on how different and unusual everything is and end up more entrenched in their way of life. Bonhoeffer traveled to understand people, how they lived and what they thought. He allowed those experiences to shape him and give him new insights into his own culture. Don't think you know everything. No matter how much you know, keep learning. Great leaders are set apart by their ability to adapt to circumstances and understand changing contexts. Great leaders know what they do not know. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few who seemed to make the right choices in an era with no good choices, yet he never gloried in it. Instead, he confessed. The church was mute where it should have cried out, he wrote. The church confesses that it has witnessed the arbitrary use of brutal force, the suffering in body and soul of countless innocent people, that it has witnessed oppression, hatred, and murder without raising its voice for the victims and without finding ways of rushing to help them. It has become guilty of the lives of the weakest and most defenseless brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. This theme of confession and repentance comes up frequently in the great moral leaders in this book. When Bonhoeffer wrote in his last days about a religionless Christianity, he was not dismissing Christianity. He was opposing versions of it that make excuses for inaction in the face of immorality. He believed fervently in God and refused to reduce God to a point where human knowledge is at an end or when human strength fails. We can excuse lack of clarity from a man penning deep theology from the depths of prison. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer believed that Christianity is about more than whether you believe in Christ. Only those who, in following Christ, leave everything they have, he wrote, can stand and say that they are justified solely by grace. He wrote this 
knowing the deadly consequences of following Christ in his context. His memory offers a place where people of different faith traditions who disagree on doctrines can find common ground on what it means to live truly and well. True freedom, Bonhoeffer wrote, means being free for the other. What we think is freedom is too often just the lack of constraints on our ego, our selfish needs, or our prejudices. He lived these words. He had numerous chances to escape Nazi Germany. Instead, he stayed. He stood alongside those most threatened. He resisted, and he died. A martyr to evil the world will not soon forget. All right, very good. Thank you, David. You are welcome. We thank you today for turning into the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. We are having a blast making these, and we've been receiving some really great feedback from y'all. Thank you. Please keep that coming. It helps us know that you want this and that you want more of it. We are over halfway through the first project of this podcast, Season 1, which is this exploration of great moral leaders. Once we're done with this, we will be headed into conversations on current events, popular ethical quandaries, and the system of kingdom ethics, and how you can be an ethical Christian. Please like, subscribe, rate, share. If you leave us a review with um, five stars, we'll definitely give you a shout out. If you put a question in a five-star review, we'll answer it. How's that sound? So go and do those things. Thanks for listening. This is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast.